0: From the Night Shift Crew Studios in the D.C. metro area, this is The Statement Show. I am your host, Terry James, along with my co-host, Zach Cheahy. We're covering sports, technology, entertainment, news, and everything in between. The lights are on. Welcome back to another episode of The Statement Show, recorded on Sunday, August 12th. I'm Terry James. And I'm Zach Cheahy. Today we interviewed nuclear physicist and ufologist Stanton Friedman. Zach,
1: yes, we did. It was exciting. The I man is very knowledgeable about UFOs and Roswell and many other subjects. Uh, I was excited personally. I've seen it on many episodes of uh, UFO documentaries. I've watched many documentaries on, on YouTube as well. Man has plenty of books to buy on his website at StantonFriedman.com. Uh, we're we're going to put a, a link to his website on our front page of our home site. Go to his website, look at his books that he has available. Like I said, he was an extremely good interview. We didn't get to half the questions that we were going to oh, ask
0: him. No, not, not when, when you're talking about. Someone that has appeared on as many shows as he has. He's, he's, uh, he's just an amazing guy. I mean, the things that he was talking about. I mean, I, I know for a fact that I had three, four, five questions for him that I never got to. I mean, I, I literally was just sitting there getting ready to jump in and he's, he, what an amazing guy. He's, yeah, he's you, just a you, great guy. Yeah, you
1: couldn't cut him off at all because. You just can't. He's pumping all this information out at you, and he's he's got it memorized because he's so passionate about what he's talking about. Something that I've always believed in, and it was a real honor. And I can't stress this enough. It was an honor to interview him. So without further ado, here's the uh, the interview we did with Stanton Freeman. Mr. Freeman, we uh, really appreciate you coming on the statement show. You just come back from a symposium. You were doing a mutual uh, UFO network. Yeah, the annual symposium
2: this year was in Cincinnati. Number 43 in the history uh, of MUFON.
1: Now I see they have you, you're down as the original surveying investigator of the Roswell incident. That's right. What can you tell me about uh, how people view Roswell today? Do you think more people believe that something happened?
2: Well, yeah, I, I've been, I began that investigation totally unintentionally really in 1978 and I've, everywhere I go I've lectured in all 50 states uh, 10 Canadian provinces and 18 other countries and Certainly, Roswell is something I get asked about all the time. I would say this, that the great majority of people accept that uh, something spectacular, if you will, happened, that a saucer crashed, aliens recovered, and government covered up. Are there some people who say that's nonsense? Of course there are. Anything you can think of, there are some people who say it's nonsense. But, uh, yeah, I- I'm not a masochist. I don't do what I do. My lectures are normally flying saucers in science, or flying saucers are real. I prefer the term flying saucer to UFOs because all flying saucer UFOs, very few UFOs are flying saucers. All great grandfathers are men, but not all men are great grandfathers, so uh, I focus on flying saucers. And, uh, there's no question that there's a very high acceptance. As a matter of fact, in over 700 lectures, just in general, and I come on very, very strong, uh, I've had only 11 hecklers and two of them were drunk. And I'm told you get more than that if you talk about sports, religion, politics. <laughs> uh, I don't talk about those things, of course, but still, uh, that's what people tell me. So uh, I must be doing something right. Uh, and so, yeah, people find that when you go into the facts, the data, uh, as opposed to the nonsense put out by the nasty, noisy negativists, uh, there is very wide acceptance. And, you know, it, it fits in with other things. I, I call the whole subject a kind of cosmic Watergate but you know if we go back far enough everybody believed the government this is the government that protected us you know in the second world war all, all kinds of good things yeah you know after political watergate and a few other things that have happened now many people believe that the government and it's hard to say but the government doesn't always tell the truth i, I know that's hard to believe but uh, you know it, it really is the case that most people believe that the government doesn't always tell the truth So Roswell has become a focal point because I think most people realize that the question of whether the planet's being visited, it's over. If Roswell really happened, in other words, if there was an alien spacecraft that crashed in New Mexico and there are other cases that qualify, incidentally, then where's the argument? Yes, the government has evidence and has been covering up and trying to do whatever they're trying to do. And so you don't need to go any further, in other words. You, you can talk about lights in the sky forever, but if you've got wreckage and bodies and cover-up, aha, you know, the problem's solved. And now what do we do is the question.
1: <laughs> Kenneth Arnold, was he, I guess it was June 24th, 1947, when he originally, he said he saw flying half-disks shaped, uh, Well,
2: crescent shapes, uh, they they weren't all identical. You know, if you go back in history, you'll find that there were over a thousand sightings in that that period in 1947. I get people who think Roswell was the first. It wasn't the first, and it wasn't uh, finding out about Roswell that got me involved in flying. So I gave my first lecture in 1967, I found out about Roswell in 1978. So Kenneth Arnold's case, and he never talked about aliens. He thought it was a secret government project. He was a pilot. He had 4,000 hours uh, as a pilot. Uh, You know, after all, the atomic bomb was developed in secret. Why wouldn't there be new airborne vehicles developed in secret? Uh, The Cold War was just heating up in summer of 47. So naturally, the government's trying to figure out a better way to, you know, to fly. And the kicker was that what he observed was that the speed was so great, someplace between 1,200 and 1,700 miles an hour. Well, the speed record at that time was less than 700 miles an hour, and the first supersonic flight, a little higher than that, was not until October of '47, which was kept secret at the time. Incidentally, there was no public announcement about that. For people who wonder about uh, telling everything to everybody all the time, we don't, and that, that's okay with me. So, uh, Arnold's sighting got the ball rolling uh, for several reasons. One is. Everybody who talked to him at the time, the press people, his colleagues uh, in Idaho and so forth, knew that this was a solid, upstanding citizen. There was no question that he was making up a story. What, why would he do it? You know, it makes no sense. So the story was played straight. And then with, you know, very shortly thereafter, lots of other citing reports that were somewhat played straight <laughs> because his was. And then Roswell was kind of the, the end of the line, uh, you know, and that was what the approach and the publicity was, that, uh, you know, we've had all these sightings, and wow, now the government says we've recovered the wreckage of a flying saucer. And let me correct one of the many, many pieces of misinformation. A lot of people seem to think that the story only appeared in the Roswell Daily Record. It was in Evening Papers from Chicago West on July 8, 1947. Chicago Daily News, Los Angeles Herald-Examiner, the Sacramento Bee's Spokane Chronicle, and a whole host more. It wasn't in the East Coast papers, and having grown up in the East, I know that people in the East think that their world is all there is. If it isn't the New York Times or the Washington Post, it doesn't exist. Well, the timing, because of the time zones in the United States, the story went out too late to make the East Coast papers and all the morning papers. The cover-up story was in the next day's paper, but incidentally, the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner had both stories in their July 8th issue. Flying Saucer recovered, and uh, General says it's Radar Weather Gadget. That cover-up came out four hours after the other story, which was too late for the East and Midwest, but not too late for the West Coast paper. And I haven't looked at the Hawaii papers, which Mm -hmm. may have both stories, but... uh, so that was one of many myths that the story only appeared in the Roswell paper. Another myth, and I became the target of this, I guess, to some extent, was how come all those people came running a Friedman with their story? They didn't, as a simple answer. <laughs> I mean, I found Jesse Marcel entirely by accident. Uh, I was at the office of a television station doing three interviews. In 1978, I was speaking that night at uh, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and the paper, uh, people from the university had brought me to the station. I did the first two interviews, and the third reporter was nowhere to be found. No cell phones then. And so the station manager uh, is giving me coffee. He's looking at his watch. He's embarrassed because he wanted the interview, but he knew I had other things to do because he knew these other people were Mm -hmm. looking for things. And out of the blue, he said, you know, the guy you really ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel and brilliant investigator that I am. I said, who's he? <laughs> and his response changed my life forever. He said, well, he handled wreckage or one of those saucers you were interested in when he was in the military. What? <laughs> and I picked my teeth up from the floor. What do you know about him? He lives in Houma, H-O-U-M-A. So that didn't tell me anything because I didn't know where it was. I was there later to talk to Jesse. He's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. You really ought to talk to him. Well, okay, then the reporter shows up. I'm busy all day. had a great response that night at the university. And the next day, I was at the airport early. I called information. Yeah, this is Jesse Marcel in Homa, wherever it was. I still didn't know. Uh, and I called him, and I mentioned Bill Allen, the name of the guy from the station. And indeed, they were
3: uh,
2: amateur radio buddies, ham radio buddies. And so uh, I asked, you know, for the story, and can you tell me more? And he told me his story. Now, remember, he was one of the few people that could not possibly deny that he was involved. As I found out later, I didn't know at the time, but as I found out later by checking lots of newspapers, his name was all over the place. His picture was in many places. Mm -hmm. He couldn't say, well, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) He he obviously did. Uh, So he told me a story. And it made sense. He didn't have a precise date. And I knew that the summer of '47 was a big date after Kenneth Arnold for UFO sightings. So it's one of those things you file. And then I heard a second story up in Bemidji, Minnesota, when somebody asked me after a lecture, ever heard anything about a crash saucer in New Mexico? Well, yes. (laughs) Tell me more. And that was the uh, Plains of San Augustine story by Barnett and so forth. And I shared these with Bill Moore. And he had a third story that was in the British Journal the Flying Saucer Review about an English actor, Huey Green, I talked to him on the phone once when I was in England, he's dead now. Uh, there was an article saying that when he was driving from Los Angeles to Philadelphia, he heard on the radio about a crash saucer in New Mexico, thought there would be a big deal when he got to Philadelphia. Uh, there wasn't. <laughs> uh, but he could recall his son lived in Canada, Bill talked to him, Bill Moore this was who I worked with. Uh and they could pin down the date. First week or so in July nineteen forty seven. You can understand that. How many times you know, you can imagine what the roads were like in nineteen forty seven. So a trip like that would be memorable. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> and so uh Bill went to the University of Minnesota Library, which had a great periodicals department. I mean He he did the work the hard way, started looking at the papers. There was the story. Confirmed what Jesse had told me, gave us all kinds of names. Uh, They spelt Walter Hout, the PR guy's uh, name, four different ways. But, you know, there wasn't any television back then. Newspapers raced to get new editions out and all that sort of thing. And uh, in the next year and a half, we located 62 people. In the next four years after that, I mean, that led to the first book, The Roswell Incident, by Bill and Charles Berlitz. I got a percentage of Bill's royalties because he and I did most of the research. Berlitz's name was magic for those too young to recall his Bermuda Triangle book. And uh, he spoke 30 languages. That helped promote it all over the world. (laughs) Berlitz Language Schools, you know. Okay. That That was his grandfather. So, anyway, we kept looking by 1984 we had found 92 people and uh, we kept at it and new people coming up uh, Don Schmidt uh, who's written several books uh, came to me in uh, a lecture I gave in about 1989 saying was there any more work to do on Roswell I said yeah I think there's a ton more but I can't afford it <laughs> I was living in Canada and uh, it's a long way from Roswell and my phone bills were killing me This before the internet Okay. makes a big difference, incidentally, Absolutely. <laughs> when you, go to, you go to finding people. We did it the old-fashioned way, the hard way. And sure, we got lucky on occasion. I mean, I called the Roswell paper. First, I looked up in a directory of newspapers. Oh, Roswell has a newspaper. What did I know about Roswell? Well, you a know, small town. Uh, and I called the paper, and I said, uh, I'm looking for the editor from 1947. This is in 78. Uh, long gone. What do you need? Well, I've got these articles here. It says that the base, they say, the base public information officer, a guy named Walter Hout or Hout, like I said, spelled four ways. Before I could finish the sentence, she says, oh, his wife works here. What? You you don't expect a soldier who, as it turns out, was from uh, Chicago, still be in Roswell. Mm -hmm. When he had been there in 47, I'm talking 78. And that was a stroke of luck. I talked to uh, Walter's wife, and I talked to Walter. He had a base yearbook. Was a big help. He's one of the founders of the museum that's down there. You realize they've had almost 3 million visitors to the museum in Roswell.
3: Wow. Does
2: anybody care about Roswell? Yes, they do. They come from all over the world. Uh, and, yeah, sure, there's a costume parade sometime, and there's stuff for the kids to do, and I wave from convertibles as the kids line the main street in Roswell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if your family is coming here, I-, I should stress, Roswell is 200 miles from Albuquerque, 200 miles from Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso. It's not on the way to anywhere. So if people are there, it's because they want to be there. It's not like Albuquerque that zillions of people go through going across the United States, east to west, or the other way around. So it's been an interesting time. And the um, the amount of attention, when I mentioned Don Schmidt asked me, was there more work to do? Well, when I told them there was, he and then Kevin Randall and others have done more. And the culmination of all that is, would you believe that hot movie options have been taken on my book, Top Secret Magic, and Don's book with Tom Carey, Witness to Roswell. And if we're very lucky, while I'm still alive, there will be a movie, Magic Men, M-A-J-I-C. uh and there's another one in the offering, incidentally. While I'm at it, might as well get in a plug. Uh, Kathleen Marden, who's Betty Hill's, Hill's niece, and I co-authored. She did most of the work. Uh, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. That's been optioned for a movie too. So I might be lucky enough to have two movies based on my books appear before I'm off this uh, this planet of ours. Uh, but Roswell, uh, no question, uh, whether speaking in Australia or Korea. Uh, or South America, or last year in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> strange place for me to speak, but what the heck, uh, is of great interest to people because it seems to have all the elements. And remember, too, an important part of that is, and, and you never hear this from the noisy negativists, the, the military group involved in Roswell, based there at Roswell Army Airfield, later Walker Air Force Base, was the 509th Composite Bomb Group. They just happened to be the most elite military group in the world at the time. Why? Because they had dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. And in 1946, they dropped two more bombs as part of Operation Crossroads in the Pacific. And as a matter of fact, Walter Hout, public relations guy, was also a bombardier. And he dropped the instrument package on one of those two bombs at Operation Crossroads. You pick your best people to do that. Mm-hmm. So I get a little irked when people like uh, Joe Nickel of the uh, Debunker Society, that's not their official name, <laughs> that's what it should be, says, oh, the press release was put out by an anonymous PR guy, unauthorized, and trying to make a name for himself. It's like, total baloney. But that's what you usually get from the debunkers is baloney. They could open a delicatessen.
1: Well, it a, was a very different military back then, was it not? I mean, you really didn't do anything unauthorized.
2: No, well, especially that group. I mean, they had a, the only place in the world where there were atomic bombs. You know? Exactly. Uh, and they were hand-picked officers, hand-picked men. And incidentally, as proof of that, I, I've heard people say, "Oh, Colonel Blanchard must have been sent off to Siberia for issuing that press release." Went on to become a four-star general and was vice chief of staff of the Air Force when he died of a massive heart attack in the mid-60s. That's not Siberia. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not very fond of Washington, but still, it's not very. I
1: I just wanted to ask you. um, While I'm thinking about this, is is this the same airfield where Project Mogul was in place? Uh, Okay.
2: No, it was not. Uh, The whole Mogul business—it's really a strange story. The uh, Air Force puts out this huge report. It's about the size of a Manhattan phone book. I I mean, not literally. in which they supposedly, this was explanation three for Roswell. Mm-hmm. The first was a flying saucer was recovered. The second, oh, sorry, is this a radar-reflector weather balloon combination. And they even launched one and had to press in to take pictures over at Alamogordo. That's where mogul stuff went on, incidentally. Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is well over 100 miles from the uh, Roswell crash site, which is also quite a, 75 miles from Roswell. New Mexico is a big place. Mm-hmm. Not many people, but where else can you can you test atomic bombs? The first one was set off in New Mexico, Trinity Site, White Sands Missile Range. You don't want people around when you're doing that, and that's where we were firing our captured German V2 rockets. Okay. So you know you don't have people. New Mexico had 120,000 square miles and a million people at that time. Today, New Jersey has 8,000 square miles and eight million people.
1: Well, with the with the big cover-up, as everybody would look at it, what's the chances this was a down project, uh, you know, I'm trying to say here, uh, like this might have been a prototype plane that they were working on? Zero. Zero.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah, because a lot of people have gone looking since then, and if you talk to the witnesses, I mean – Admittedly, they're almost all, not quite, but almost all deceased now, was 65 years ago. That's not surprising, after all.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but, for example, on my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, you'll find Recollections of Roswell, a DVD, 105 minutes long with testimony from 27 first-hand witnesses. And they include people like uh, retired General Thomas Jefferson DuBose, He was General Roger Ramey's uh, chief of staff. Ramey was head of the 8th Air Force. He was Colonel Blanchard's boss. So I figured he might still be alive. I knew Blanchard was dead, and I knew Ramey was dead. Uh, And I managed to locate Thomas Jefferson DuBose and meet with him twice. And one of them is uh, in this interview. And and a no-nonsense guy, West Pointer, of course, as was Blanchard, as was Ramey, Uh, and DuBose tells me, I'm the first one he talked to, uh, connected with research here, that he took the call from Ramey's boss in Washington, acting head of the Strategic Air Command, General McMullen, giving him three orders. One, get the press off our back, I don't care how you do it. Two, send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your colonel couriers. He's is from Fort Worth, Texas now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And three, I don't want you ever to talk about it again, not even with your buddy Roger Ramey. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing? No, sir. When a two-star general tells a colonel what to do, both of them Pointers, he does it. And people say, why didn't he protest? What? 1947? A general tells a colonel what to do? He protests. He's in the brig.
1: Yeah.
2: You know what I mean? This is just the media post-war, Cold War heating up, all the rest of that.
1: You follow orders.
2: when, when, yeah, when you hear people like DuBose and a whole bunch of others. Remember, Jesse Marcel was the, the intelligence officer for the 509. That's not a trivial position. He briefed, out talked to crews that he briefed. They ran, quote, bombing missions. They would send out bunches of B-29s to, you know, fly 2,000 miles or something and theoretically drop bombs and so forth. Jesse was not a dink. He wasn't the guy who swept the floor. He got, we've seen, uh, very strong recommendations from General Ramey, as a matter of fact. So it's the caliber of the people. And uh, one of the important witnesses who's still alive is Jesse's son, doctor, that's medical doctor, Jesse Marcel. He uh, is, was a flight surgeon. He is a helicopter pilot. Would you believe he was called back in at age 68 to serve in Iraq? and flew 225 combat hours in helicopters.
1: Yeah, it's truly amazing.
2: Yeah, I, what was amazing to me was that in Peter Jennings' mockumentary broadcast on February 24th, 2005, they interviewed Jesse, and they didn't mention that he was a doctor. They didn't mention he was a colonel serving at the time in Iraq, and all the rest of that stuff. Well, I think those things go to credibility. You can't say he's anti-government. No, he's just a colonel in the service in the war that we're fighting. But, you know, other than,
1: other than that. It's kind of insulting watching some of these documentaries that the media comes out with because they they always have a way of a snicker. You know, uh, everything they well, talk about is kind of with right. a little bit of a laugh. So they,
2: they interviewed me for an hour, Jennings people, in Roswell. Nice interview. And they used 20 seconds, and they called me a promoter twice in 20 seconds. Didn't say I was a physicist, of course. We can't do that. And they had some people on saying stupid things. Dr. Tyson, who's the uh, head of the planetarium, Hayden Planetarium in New York, he talks about the Voyager is our fastest craft. It would take 70,000 years to get to the nearest star. Uh, Scientists like to get their results before that. Obviously, interstellar travel is impossible. What nonsense? It doesn't have a power plant on it. It's not powered at all. It's coasting. It's like throwing a bottle in the ocean and saying, well, now we can find out how long it takes to cross the ocean. Utterly ridiculous. And they got rid of, uh, they had Bud Hopkins on, but they threw out the interview with uh, Dr. Mack, Harvard psychiatrist, mind you. Mm -hmm. And instead they had uh, a woman who'd done her research on trying to make the case against abductions and got everything wrong. But that's all right. And as a third thing on that one program, now I'll admit it was only seen by 14 million people. My uh, <laughs> documentary, uh, Unsolved Mysteries, okay. was seen by 28 million people. So I'm glad about that. But uh, there was uh, Dr. Jill Tarter on. She and her husband were flying their airplane, and they saw a light in the sky. They simulated this, I guess. And could it be a UFO? Oh, no! Ah, it's just the moon. That's the best they could do for simulated UFO sightings. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's pretty ludicrous, frankly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's funny. I'm on a one-man movement against SETI. SETI stands for not Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, but Silly Effort to Investigate, S-E-T-I, based on bad science and strange assumptions. Like, for example, why would an alien civilization out there somewhere Use technology, uh, good for us. In other words, that we could understand. We've had long distance radio since 1901, Marconi. Mm-hmm. And there are two stars. This comes out of the star map work that goes to the Betty and Barney Hill case. Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 reticuli. Uh, they're only 39 light years away. That's just down the street. But, they're a cool billion dollars, a billion years, yeah, dollars too, a cool billion years older than the sun. So why would you expect somebody to be stuck at our level of technology? You know, and why would you send a message here anyway? I mean, did Columbus send smoke signals to the Indians? I mean, you know,
1: absolutely. I agree.
2: The the assumptions are really strange. Also, you know, what gets to me and maybe because I was in industry and not in academia, I've spoken at 600 colleges, but my, my home was in industry. They don't seem to understand how much research gets done outside of academia. Two different guys told me, Stan, if a saucer had crashed at Roswell, they'd have had to pull half the physicists out of the colleges in the United States. I said, you've got to be kidding. We have loads of places where we have people who are very highly talented and have appropriate security clearances. Look at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. Look at Oak Ridge. Look at Hanford. Look at GE. Look at uh, Lockheed. Uh, yeah. When I was working on nuclear airplanes for General Electric in nineteen fifty eight long time ago, shows how old I am, <laughs> that year we spent one hundred million dollars. We employed thirty five hundred people of whom eleven 1, hundred were engineers and scientists. That's not six professors and twenty grad students. It's a major project. The stealth aircraft was developed cost of ten billion dollars in secret over a period of ten years. Not in academia, at Lockheed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, and they also, this particularly irks me because I worked on nuclear propulsion systems. They don't seem to understand that there's a whole world out there, not just chemical propulsion. First nuclear submarine, the Nautilus, 1956. We have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling. Think about that for a minute. That's pretty spectacular. I worked on studies of nuclear fusion propulsion and to illustrate, just so people are aware of what kind of world we really live in, in nineteen forty four a big bomb was a ten ton blockbuster. Had to be carried by a B twenty nine, made a pretty big hole in the ground. We were dropping them all over Europe. One year later, first atomic bomb released the energy not of ten tons of TNT. But 19,000 tons of TNT, that was in 1945. 1952, our first fusion weapon, H-bomb, if you want to call it that. Mike was its name, whatever that's worth, was detonated. Fireball three miles wide, released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. That's a lot. And the Russians tested one a few years later. 57 million tons of TNT. So that tells you several things. One, we're, the, we're going to be looked at by other beings in our neighborhood because they don't want us out there behaving the way we do. Uh, you know, a little details like in World War II, we killed 60 million people. 60 million of our own kind. We destroyed 1,700 cities, and we've exploded over the years 2,000 nuclear warheads. Only two on people, for which I am very grateful. But still, if you're looking at this from an alien's viewpoint, they're primitive society, major activity, tribal warfare. Mm -hmm. Look, today as we speak, earthlings will spend a trillion dollars this year on things military, and thousands of children die needlessly of preventable disease or starvation every single day. So, you know, you've got to look at this from a, a realistic viewpoint. and. Anybody studying the matter would say, sure, you can use fusion. It's going to cost you a bundle, but you can get to the stars. Everybody out there will try to figure out how its star works, and they will find that it's nuclear fusion that produces the energy. So we're just getting ready to join the club, so to speak. we got bombs, but not uh, fusion propulsion systems yet. We've studied them; cost a lot of a bundle of dough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... We need some realism here, and I sure don't find it in academia, and the notion that governments can't keep secrets. Dr. Tyson again said, well, it's easy to prove that the U.S. government can't keep secrets. Look how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. What the (laughs) the heck has that got to do with the question at hand? Dr. Seth Shostak said that uh, the proof that the government can't keep secrets is how badly we've fouled up with FEMA and Katrina. And look how poorly the post office is run.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I didn't hear him say anything about the NSA, the CIA, the DIA, the NRO. Then there's a bunch more OSI of these alphabet soup agencies. That's where the secrecy is. You know, so it's, it's aggravating to deal with people who get a lot of airtime, but who don't know what they're talking about. And I'll admit, I worked under security for 14 years. And I don't think everything should be declassified either. You know, because there are some legitimate national security concerns. I mean, if the Russians and Chinese will say, oh, yeah, here's our advanced technology, too. Well, then maybe we all should be talking some more. Mm-hmm. But uh, without that, why in the world would you declassify high-tech stuff? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Absolutely. It just seems like the the government does classify an enormous amount of information, How do we know they're really, there's a check, I mean, there's supposed to be a check and balance, but it just seems like they they classify everything to the point where they keep it hidden no matter what. You have no way of getting what you need. Well,
2: I've been to 20 archives, and anybody, I've had people tell me, well, Stan, it's all declassified after 20 years, or 25. Nonsense. (laughs) You know, I can prove it. I've been there. Uh, Mm -hmm. Loads of stuff at all these places that's still classified from, some of it from. Before World War II, as a matter of fact. So, you know, on on several counts, the noisy negativists are way off base. Secrets can be kept. There is an enormous amount of evidence. You never find references to the five large-scale scientific studies that I talk about in the SETI literature. I read their books. Now, I'll admit, Seth Shostak admitted on Coast to Coast Radio that he had a copy of my book on his nightstand. He didn't say he'd read it. And I'd send it to him with his permission We met, And when I lectured on the Queen Elizabeth II, he attended my lecture, three of them we each gave. And uh, when I asked how many people have read this study after each of the five studies I talked about, he didn't raise his hand on any of them. But he still hadn't read them when we debated, and I won the debate, naturally. Mm-hmm. He didn't know anything. Uh, I'll bet he wouldn't debate me again, though. Well, I got 57% of the vote. He got 33%, and 10% said, I don't know who won. Uh, You know, it's easy to talk a good anti-UFO game. Mm -hmm. Very easy. Make up four basic rules. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation's too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. And look, the New York Times uh, takes that approach. The the fourth explanation for Roswell, uh, the third was the mogul balloons, which don't fit. Mm You can start looking in detail. The fourth, which is my favorite, was that the stories of bodies are the result of the crash test dummies, which the government dropped all over New Mexico. Now it is true. We were trying to develop ejection seats for airplanes flying at high levels and at high speed. And it's not a good idea to use live pilots as your test special. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, so that was the explanation. We were dropping these bodies all over the state, and uh, that's why people talked about bodies. There's a little problem with that, several little problems with that. One, none were dropped until six years after Roswell. So we got time travel for crash test dummies. (laughs) Two, I talked with the man who was head of the program. His picture's in the Air Force Report. They didn't talk to him. And I met with him in person in uh, Albuquerque. He's dead now, but uh, so you can't interview him. <laughs> and he pointed out to me that, look, for the test to be meaningful, the bodies had to be the same size as pilots. They were 6 feet tall and 175 pounds, and, incidentally, they were in uniform. You say, why were they in uniform? Well, because pilots would be in uniform if they had to eject from an airplane, and that affects the drag on the body as it drops, and how quickly do you open your parachute? How quickly do you freeze to death? <laughs> you, dro- you drop in from 40,000 feet. It mm-hmm. is a problem. So, uh, of course, every rancher in New Mexico is going to find one of these and say, oh, my God, the aliens are invading. Of course, <laughs> the, the alien story is four feet tall with a big head. You now, how you convert an <laughs> Air Force uniformed a dummy that's six feet tall, and 175 pounds, and so the little guys. I don't know, but the noisy negativists have figured it all out.
1: Yeah, it's I, I hear stories how they. It seems the media is so quick to they discredit everybody. They make every the, the normal citizen um, out as if they they can't make the difference between normal tin foil uh, as opposed to what they found on the ground. They yeah, to memory t-
2: metal is not tinfoil.
1: foil. <laughs> exactly, they, you know, uh, or or the tape. That had the design on it, and it was just, they used any old tape that was laying around. Um, I've heard all kinds of excuses.
2: Incidentally, how come the Air Force has never provided a sample of that tape? With all their resources, uh, you know, the the toy manufacturers tape from New York. I talked to somebody the other day who said he looked in the old phone books to try to find that company. Couldn't even find it in the New York in the old phone books. So we, we live in a strange world. Now the, the peculiar thing. Is the New York Times put the crash test dummy story in the best location you can get in a newspaper in the United States, upper left, Sunday New York Times, and uh, you you can't beat that. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: uh, they did—they didn't talk to General, um, retired Colonel Madsen. They just bought the story, hook, line, and sinker, and that's not good uh, for the American public uh, as a symptom of blind acceptance. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, to go along with that, I was asked to do the David Susskind talk show way back in the 70s, and uh, they wanted all kinds of stuff, I gave them all kinds of stuff. They wanted leads to all kinds of people, like uh, we need a good uh, debunker or a good skeptic, they said. And I said, well, there aren't any, but here's how to reach film class, etc. Anyway, <clears throat> between segments, David Susskind says, look, I read the New York Times. There's nothing in there that convinces me that these things are real. And so the Susskind syndrome, I take great pride in keeping up on what's important in the world. And if aliens were visiting, that would be important. And if we're being covered up, that would be important too. And I've seen nothing that leads me in that direction. So there must be no data indicating that because I keep up with such things. And so don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And I run across this quite often. Um, let me give you another example. Uh, in 1952, orders were issued to military pilots to shoot down UFOs if they don't land when instructed to do so. The New York Times didn't carry that story, and neither did the Washington Post. Several other newspapers didn't even name the Air Force guy who released the story. And there was a general who stood up and said, we've scrambled jets, uh, uh, airplanes over 300 times, just routine. Uh, why didn't the Times carry it? Isn't that kind of a big thing? Uh, There is a book, uh, Shoot Them Down, by Frank Ficino, about the events of 1952. Uh, Can you picture a pilot trying to tell an alien driving a flying saucer, get your tail on the ground, guys, now! (laughs) Uh, You know, and I, I have personally heard, quietly, seven stories of pilots chasing UFOs and not returning. It appears that they might have been zapped, because in Frank's book, He's got 200 examples of fatal airplane crashes by military planes in the United States between uh, 51 and 56. And five of the pilots had over 100 missions in Korea. And there were MiGs trying <clears throat> to shoot them down in Korea. Mm-hmm. You had to be a pretty good pilot to live through, you know, 100 missions with guys trying to shoot you down. Absolutely. And so that doesn't it seem a little strange. A guy would come back from Korea and then die in a crash in the United States. It seems strange to me anyway. But uh, So there is a lot we don't hear about, and the, part of it is a result of the media's failure to do their job. But incidentally, one of the 12 PhD theses that I'm aware of, and I think there are more, but I haven't dug recently, is about press coverage of the subject. And there were scathing remarks about the inadequacy of the coverage. Uh, these are uh, All of them are listed in my book, Top Secret Magic, Uh, which is a 10-page bibliography. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's there's plenty of data out there for people who have a serious interest. And uh, there is one way in which the Internet can be helpful. You can find obscure papers. Uh, Somebody asked me about a paper of mine, and I went to the Internet. Oh, there it was from umpteen years ago. (laughs) Easier than my digging out of my files, which Mm -hmm. are sort of uh, not very well set up. (laughs) I'm about five years behind on my filing.
1: I, I found the uh, the Majestic 12 uh, documents online. Oh, um, sure. Uh, of course. But a you... bunch
2: of the ones that are online are phonies, you understand.
1: Okay. Uh, the one, there's uh, the FBI files that they, they say they're bogus.
2: Oh, yeah. I love <laughs> that statement from the FBI. They talked to Colonel Weaver, who wrote the Roswell report. And that was good enough for them. He sent him a copy with the word bogus written on it. But when I filed a Freedom of Information Act request for all the letters, memos, data, et cetera that led to that statement, every he said everybody knows that they're bogus. We don't have anything in response to your request, he said. And I say three of them are genuine, and the most important classified documents are released to the public. Mm-hmm. Now He provided nothing other than proclamation. Uh, and you want to see a good example of double dealing. One of the witnesses that uh, is quoted uh, was Colonel Cabot, uh, who went out to the crash site with Jesse Marcel in 1947. And when he is interviewed umpteen years later, first he denied he was even at the base, then, well, well, uh, I guess I was there at that time, you know. Then he's talking to Colonel Weaver, and he says, oh, yeah, I remember it was just a balloon. Uh, fit easily in one vehicle covered an area 20 feet square, 20 feet square. If that's all there was, why didn't the rancher just bring it into town? Why did Jesse, Marcel, and Cavett track the rancher back out to his ranch out in the middle of nowhere, about miles off the road? There had been no reason to do that uh, and stay overnight, mind you, in their sleeping bags mm-hmm. and eat a can of beans, Jesse told me in a first conversation. The rancher was kind to them. <laughs> uh, and the newspaper article on the ninth with the debunking part of the story even that said, the area covered was 200 yards in diameter. And here he tries to get away with saying 20 square feet. Now, that's misrepresentation, lying, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I resent that. Uh, you know, it, it, it goes in the same class. The biggest study ever done for the Air Force, Project Blue Book, Special Report Number 14, mm-hmm. data on 3,201 sightings. That's a lot. It was done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. And the Secretary of the Air Force
3: uh, is quoted
2: in the press release that was put out, which didn't even give the title of the report. Some reporter surely would have said, what do you mean Report 14? Went out on 1 through 13? Oh, they're all classified would have been the true answer, which he wouldn't have gotten. But here's the Secretary of the Air Force saying, on the basis of this report, we believe that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. This is in 1955, incidentally. Mm -hmm. That sounds very straightforward. The only trouble is, when you look at a copy of the report, uh, the unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%, and there was a separate category, insufficient information. That's blatant lie. I looked at a lot of newspaper coverage of that statement, thought, nobody correcting it or even identifying that the work was done at tell uh, or naming any of the people, and also not pointing out that the better the quality of the report, the more likely to be unidentified, and that a cross-comparison between unknowns and knowns showed the probability the unknowns, which the only ones are interested in, are just missed knowns, is less than 1%. Now, I resent having the Secretary of the Air Force so blatantly lie. And you know it—it it just bugs me. That's all. It's not right. I worked under security. It tiptoe around the truth sometimes. It did not release classified data, but set up a total uh, bunch of nonsense like that is irksome to say the least.
1: Project Blue Book. Didn't they even employ Dr. Was it Dr. Hynek? Uh
2: he... Dr. J. Allen Heinic was a scientific consultant for mm-hmm. more than twenty years. And if you want to know what he really thought about the subject after he left. Blue Book, when it was closed, uh, you read his book, uh, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry.
3: Uh,
2: Incidentally, the reason Blue Book was closed, we found out many years later, was, uh, first of all, the Condon Committee had recommended that it be closed because it wasn't contributing anything, and I would agree with that. But it was closed because of a memo from an Air Force General, Carol Bolander, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, he was asked uh, in mid-1969, uh, what should we do about Project Blue Book? He had no previous connection with it. He was an engineer working on a lunar excursion module, and we landed successfully on the moon. Yes, I believe that <laughs> in, the, in the summer of 1969. Okay. In his memo, which we didn't get until years later, uh, he said reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP, Joint Army, Navy, Air Force publication, 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. Two paragraphs later, he says, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the regulations established for that purpose. Now, I located here years after this. Unusual name that makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, it, I explained to him that I'd had a clear insight, read his memo with interest, etc. I said, It sounds to me like you're saying that there were two separate communication channels one for the stuff that could affect national security, say a saucer flying down the runway at a SAC base where nuclear weapons are stored. That's a national security problem. <laughs> uh huh. And the other, if uh, we go outside and look up and see a saucer going over, big deal. I mean, Newfoundland these days, incidentally, gets over 600 reports a month. No, it's common people see a flying saucer. And he said, yes, that's right. There were two separate ones. Now, what's interesting is the airport since 1969, the book was closed as a result of this memo at the end of 1969. It said, uh, no national security problem here And we are no longer doing anything about UFOs. Project Blue Book was, his memo clearly indicates they were lying through their teeth. But I've seen no major media group talk about the Bolander memo. I have copies for anybody who's interested. Uh, You know, uh, don't you think that's important? That uh, Blue Book wasn't investigating the high security stuff? Absolutely. I was impressed with Bollinger, incidentally. Uh, very straightforward.
1: So do you think um, in today's day and age, the way they keep everything a secret, basically, uh, do you believe disclosure is going to happen?
2: Uh, if you mean disclosure as it's being properly discussed, even Greer and others, mm-hmm. no, I do not, not for a long time. What I'd like to see happen is that uh, well-trusted people make a public announcement. Uh, my favorite pair is the Queen and the Pope, <laughs> About the same age, you know, uh, saying that indeed the, uh, the indications are from all over the world that the planet's being visited. We, uh, that we're ready. See that, well, there doesn't seem to be any immediate security problem for us. And that international conferences have been called dealing with the psychological, economic, philosophical, religious implications of mm-hmm. these things. And, I think it needs to be done on an international basis. That's why I say the queen of the Pole. I mean, it's nonsense about why don't they live in the White House lawn? <laughs> the president does not speak for 7 billion earthlings.
1: Some of the and time I, he
2: doesn't speak for 300 million Americans.
1: I, I bring up one of my favorite cases, uh, the 1952 lights above Washington, D.C. Yes. That's always something I've, I've kind of I've, I've looked at. You don't hear it talked about very much. It's almost as though they try to ignore it.
2: Well, the government tries to ignore it certainly, and many ufologists are too young to know every cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, they tried landing on a White House woman and they were chased away. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: what can I say? But but you, you see what I'm saying. A disclosure is a big deal, and that we should put everything on the table. I mean, I hear claims not supported by any evidence. Mm-hmm. We figured out free energy from studying UFOs, and we're holding this back from the, the world's people. And industry is making a ton of money from taking advantage of what we learned, and the public isn't doing anything. You know, I hear all this kind of hypothetical crap, crap as far as I'm
1: concerned. Absolutely, it's it sounds like a fantasy right out of yeah. Bob Lazar's mouth. <laughs> I <laughs> I've tried, I've listened. Anybody wants to go onto YouTube can see interviews with Bob Lazar and. It sounds like something right out of a movie script. Uh, half of the things that he's saying, like he's a,
2: he's There's a just... factual article on my website, com, mm-hmm. about Bob Lazar and all the work I did to try to find out. I was being asked. He was calling himself a nuclear physicist, and I am one, and I was being asked, so I checked mm-hmm. and found that uh, talked to five different people at MIT, never went there, Caltech never went there. I talked to his high school, he was in the bottom third of his high school class, which means he couldn't have been admitted to MIT or Caltech. Uh, he was at a meeting in on the extraterrestrial highway, a little alien, you know, in Rachel, Nevada. Mm-hmm. And questions were being asked, and people said, can you name any of your professors? Because I had raised this objection. I went to Chicago, I, and I'm older than he is by quite a bit, uh you know, I can name mine. He said, well, let me see now. Uh, Bill Duxler, he'll remember me from Caltech Physics, and that's a mistake, because I checked the American Physical Society, I found only one William Duxler. He was a professor of physics, had a PhD, but he taught at Pierce Junior College, not at Caltech. They're close geographically, less than 50 miles apart, but intellectually, they're a lot farther apart than that. And he checked. He was irked that somebody was using his name, uh, and he checked on me. To see. Yeah, I was listed in the the American Physical Society, and of course Bob is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had Bob in one of his courses, uh, 1978, I think it was, the very same year that Bob was supposedly at MIT 2,500 miles away. Uh, Bob claimed that the <clears throat> Los Alamos had 500 pounds of element 115. Well, it's got a half-life less than a second. Ain't no way to have 500 pounds of something with a half-life, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, there's an article that goes into the detail uh, uh, on my website. also talks about Colonel Corso, mm-hmm. uh, for those who want the facts about him as well.
1: If,
3: Sorry,
2: not everything you hear is true.
1: Absolutely. Well, if he had a clearance and he worked in a government site, they make you sign a ton of paperwork uh, when you do your SF86 for a government clearance, my biggest issue with the whole thing is if he was really talking this much, uh, I'm pretty sure he would have been thrown in jail. Of course, that might have given credence to what he's saying, but for the most part, I believe he would have been he would have been uh, prosecuted. So um,
2: uh, you noticed that, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it was a va- it was it was it's a fan- it's nice to listen to. It's it's kind of a pipe dream. It sounds like something. He's a very bright movie. guy. Absolutely. Um, I really do appreciate you coming on the show. I've been to your website. Uh, you have a lot of uh, books for sale, interesting uh, uh, bio on there. Um, it's at stantonfreeman.com. That's it. Okay. And I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really do appreciate you coming on. I uh, thank you well, very thanks much. Thanks for
2: having me. Right. I'd like
1: to reach out.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. and Even Sunday morning. <laughs> Sunday.
1: Where, where, where? Where's your next engagement? Uh, I
2: will be in Atlanta at DragonCon. It's a big science fiction convention. Every once, every five years or so, I'll go to one. Okay. I'm giving four lectures there. And if they look on my website, there's a list of events. I'm doing a lot of stuff coming up. I'm an old guy, but I'm still spry. I'm still able to get out there.
1: You've got and, quite the uh, rock star status there, I bet.
2: Well,. A lot of people recognize me from television, partly because they say, gee, Stan, you've lost weight. <laughs> I said, no, that's television. It adds 20 pounds. <laughs> but they remember that I look different from the way they saw me on the two.
1: <laughs> oh, sure, sure. So, all right. Well, Stan, I really appreciate being on the show. My pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. Well, that was Stan Freeman uh, with us on The Statement Show. You can go to his website at stantonfreeman.com. Go and check out his bio with the books he has for sale. As you heard, he's a really interesting person to have on. What did you think, Terry? Oh, that was
0: amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I had sitting here about three or four questions. He just answered them. Yeah. Right, right. I was in awe of, like, I'm getting ready to ask him a question, and he just – he's amazing. What
1: a great guy. There's quite a few questions I had for him. I just – I didn't have – I couldn't interrupt him because he's such an interesting person to listen to. Right. he has knowledge that you just. I mean, I, I had. I wanted to ask him about the the Nazi correlation with the Kexburg Bell. Uh, I never got to that, so maybe we'll have him on again sometime. I would love to have him back on because, I,
0: I, as a matter of fact, I wanted to talk with him a little bit about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction
1: exactly. uh, and just,
0: it, you know, we, we just. I could have talked with him for about three hours.
1: But he's amazing. He's an amazing person to have on. Um, everybody needs to go on, and you need to get one of his books. Go to his website. Uh, he's a very nice individual. He really is a very knowledgeable person on Roswell, considering he was one of the very first uh, uh, civilian investigators for Roswell. As you could hear, he's very knowledgeable and doesn't does not like uh, the subject being taken uh, lightly. And I agree. I'm, I'm, I've always been a very a big believer in the Roswell UFO crash and how the government covers it up. I don't think disclosure is going to come anytime soon. Just like you said, just doesn't seem like that's something that's going to happen. I think it's more of wishful thinking. Anyway, that was Mr. Stanton Freeman. If you go to our website at www.thestatementshow.com, you can go to Amazon. You can click through amazon.com to help the show out. You can also see that Terry has the link for his new book, fantasy football up for thestatementshow.com. How's that been selling there for you Terry it's it's been
0: going really well I'm, I'm very proud of it and uh, you know as a matter of fact Zach are we gonna are we gonna throw up a couple links to uh, Mr. Friedman's books as well
1: Absolutely. I'm gonna well better than I'm gonna throw up the link for his website so everybody can hey, go to his go. website you can also go to our website at wwwthestatementshow.com go to Mr. Friedman's website and see what he has available we thank you for joining us for this week on thestatementshow.com. We thank Mr. Freeman for coming on the show. That brings us to the end of another Statement Show episode. We thank you for coming. Go to our website to support the show. Thank you, Mr. Freeman, for coming on. The lights are off. Thanks for joining us at The Statement Show. If you like the show, go to our website at thestatementshow.com and click on one of our affiliates. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Also on Facebook and Twitter at Statement Show. For comments or concerns or to be a guest on The Statement Show, email us at the Show at gmail.com.